Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. And I'm Elizabeth Norman, publisher of Connecticut Explored. In this episode, join Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored, for a discussion with Dr. Helen Shoemaker about Victorian jewelry and wreaths made from human hair. Creepy or maybe just wildly sentimental. Find out more about this now and fashionable way to remember your loved ones. If you've seen the new fall 2021 issue of Connecticut Explored, you'll know that the theme for the issue is Victoriana. It's a sumptuous issue that features all of the period's exuberance. One story features beautifully crafted gold jewelry, something I'm normally drawn to, but with a twist. Instead of gemstones, it's made from human hair. How in the world did this become popular? My guest today is Dr. Helen Shoemaker, the author of Love Entwined, The Curious History of Human Hair Work, as well as two encyclopedias of American material culture. She teaches history and American studies at Miami University of Ohio. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. When did this hair work, jewelry, and other items become popular? So in the United States, human hair work, that is jewelry specifically made out of human hair, uh, became popular roughly around the 1770s and remained popular until about 1900. Now, it seems unusual to me. We don't see this used at any kind, as any kind of a memento now. What did this uh, use of hair for these items like jewelry represent to the Victorian middle class? So it's actually complicated. And I'll go back to the idea that we don't have similar tokens um, of hair today. But for the Victorians in the United States, The most obvious meaning is that it was a sentimental object. The hair that was used in the jewelry was almost always the hair of a close loved one, a person's child, husband, wife, brother, sister, um, mother, or father. And so that is pretty obvious, I think, to us that you would save the hair of a loved one and then make it into a piece of jewelry that you would wear. Where I think we struggle a bit to understand why they would have done it is that there's a couple of other things going on. In the 19th century, particularly after the 1840s and into the 1850s, the middle class formed and identified itself in part around what it could buy. This is a question of taste. So when you bought a piece of hair jewelry, that is that you gave the jeweler the hair of your loved one and they made it into a piece of jewelry that you wore. When other people saw that piece of jewelry, it's as if you were telling them that you shared similar values. And part of that value was the importance of family, the recognition of the emotional ties of family, but it was also that you had the kind of taste that made wearing hair work appropriate for you. So that's one of the kind of complicating factors. Uh, To get a little deeper into that is that 
in the 19th century, as we move closer to 1900, what we see is that the consumer products that were available to middle-class people increasingly shift to machine-made goods. And human hair work cannot be adequately made by a machine. It has to be handmade. And so part of the value of these bits of jewelry made of hair is that they not only represented your emotional tie to people, they didn't have to be dead, by the way, they could be alive. It didn't only mean that you had the taste to select such an item and wear it. It also was that it couldn't be machine made. It wasn't reproducible. It was completely and utterly unique to you and to the market. So when middle-class people selected these items, had them made and wore them, they were um, actually sort of demonstrating a class allegiance and a class membership, but in complicated ways. Makes me think of all the handmade things I've bought off Etsy over the years. You mentioned that these were all, uh, these are handmade type objects. Who made these? So that's a really good question. The world of human hair work, again, we're pretty far away from it, was both objects that were jewelry. And these jewelry items range from drop earrings to bracelets, necklaces, men's watch fobs, just ran the gamut. But the hair work industry also created um, individual objects for decorating parlors, so flowers made of hair. So for the jewelry, um, you could make jewelry at home by yourself. There were directions that were published in women's magazines beginning in the 1840s. These were the most popular women's magazines of the time period. So Peterson's Ladies Magazine, Godey's Ladies Magazine. And these had very detailed directions on how to actually weave the hair and make your own, for example, watch fob. It was a really tedious and difficult craft to learn. Women did learn it. There's lots of examples scattered around the museums around this country of homemade hair jewelry. Most people from my research, my guess is that most people actually went to a jeweler. This could be if you lived in a very small town, but you had a jeweler, it could be that jeweler. The jeweler would have a catalog of hair work designs. You would give them the hair and you would pick out your design. And more often than not, the jeweler would then send it out to a jobber or a uh, artisan who was privately contracting. So most of the hair was professionally made, not necessarily by the jeweler that they ordered it from. There was a kind of informal network. There is uh, records in the archive that demonstrate that jewelers who didn't have, or hair workers that didn't have their own shops were actually billing other jewelers for making hair work. So it really ranged from, I would call it the professional hair work makers through the more craftsy home versions that you, like you said, you'd have directions in magazines. Now I've seen, I think it's Abraham Lincoln wearing a watch fob, a hair watch fob. But um, in addition to the jewelry, which is, is very intricate, take a look at the pictures in this uh, month's magazine, Connecticut Explored. What other kind of things have you seen? Like you were talking about home decor. So the most 
common home decor item is to have a wreath. These were parlor wreaths. They look like a Christmas wreath. They're usually open at the top or depending on how you you hang it, it could be open at the bottom, a bit like a horseshoe. They're usually about a foot and a half to three feet in diameter. So they're quite large and they're made up. The body of the wreath is made up of individual flowers that are constructed out of thin wire and looped hair. And you can make shapes that look like roses, daisies, violets, any flower you want, any leaf shape you want, because the hair wrapped around the wire then can be bent into the shape you want. These wreaths almost always have the hair of several individuals. So it's almost like a family photo. You would have the hair of different family members made individually and then joined together into this wreath that then would be mounted into a big shadow box frame and put up um, on the parlor wall. The other things I've seen are everything from belts to uh, flower arrangements under glass to just scatterings. Um, There's an awful lot of unfinished hair work projects that women started in the 1850s to 1900 and then handed down in their families until the family gave it to a museum collection where a researcher like me finds these little bits of wire and hair and ribbon um, just sort of squinched together in a box. I've noticed that they're really artistic versions that combine, you know, a, you know, blonde hair with brunette hair or darker hair, or gray hair. You know, you've got those color tones that just come in human hair, but I've seen some very artistic renderings where they combine all those different colors. I think those are a great example of that intersection between the sentimentality and the kind of middle-class aesthetic I was talking about. Because there are short stories from the 19 or from the 19th century in which, uh, for example, a woman goes around her town collecting hair that's specific colors to make her wreath look better. So while we might look at it and assume, oh, this is so sweet, these two colors of hair have been interwoven to show how close they were, that might be. But it could also be they just like the effect of that. There's a wonderful, like two or three short stories about the prize was bright red hair because it could make the flowers look better. So there's some very funny short stories of girls and and women chasing basically red-haired women to try to get that color of hair for their hair wreath. Now, those are, those are a bit like the sitcoms of today, doesn't really reflect real life, but sometimes some of the most intricate and professionally made hair jewelry that uses that contrast of hair color is more about the aesthetics of the contrast than necessarily about the relationship between people. That being said, some of the most lovely pieces I've ever looked at will, for example, mix the very light straw-colored hair of a child with the graying brown hair of a mother in a brooch. And then you learn when you research it that that's a mourning brooch um, commemorating the death of the child. So, you know, this is why um, the 19th century is so interesting. People are 
sentimental. They are that kind of Victorian way we think, but then they also can be somebody who wears a black and white plaid braided piece of hair jewelry where they, all they wanted was the color contrast for their dress. Hey, Grading the Nutmeggers. We'll return to the episode in a moment, but I want to invite you to deepen your connection to Connecticut history with the CT Explored Inbox subscription. It's our brand new e-newsletter that sends you the latest stories, exhibitions, and program announcements. Lots of great stuff to enhance your Grading the Nutmeg experience right to your email inbox. Comes out every other week, just enough, not too much. Check it out at ctexplored.substack.com. It's free. Hi, I'm Mary Donahue. Did you know that you can get an introductory copy of Connecticut Explored magazine for free? Our fall issue on Victoriana focuses on the fascinating, complicated, and disruptive Victorian era with articles on stunning windows by Lewis Comfort Tiffany, mail-order house designs by Bridgeport's Palliser and Palliser, two of the state's most over-the-top museums, the Lockwood Matthews Museum in Norwalk and the Slater Museum in Norwich, as well as terracotta decoration, the picturesque Cedar Hill Cemetery, and more. To get your free copy of this beautiful issue, go to the Connecticut Explored website under Shop and order your introductory copy at no cost. Or, already a subscriber? Order one for a friend. Now back to our guest. What do you think the influence of somebody like Queen Victoria who wore black after her husband died and wore what was considered um, morning color jewelry, jet jewelry and different pieces like that? How do the hair pieces fit into that 19th century idea of morning jewelry? So... On one hand, there are a lot of pieces of hair work, hair jewelry, and hair weaves that are mourning objects. That's why they were made. Someone died, they cut some of their hair before they buried them, and then they had the hair made into the mourning object. So the other part of it is, and this has to do with the the quality of hair, the physical characteristics of hair. Even if it isn't explicitly a mourning object, it's about the yearning to have the memory of a person survive their life, even the owner's life. That's why we can have those beautiful pictures that are in the article is because the hair retains its color. It retains its gloss. It's very malleable and it is such a long lasting material that that idea of sort of transcending death and transcending time is quite literally what these pieces of of hair work do. That is really touching when you think about it. Now, in the magazine article, you mentioned we have these beautiful images of hair objects, really from some of our state's most prestigious museums the Wadsworth Athenaeum, the Connecticut Historical Society, Connecticut Landmarks, and the Stowe Center. Why do you think these items deserve to be included in these museum collections? So I am well aware that for the 21st century eye, um, it can be a little off-putting, these objects, for the very reason I just talked about. They're made of the material, living material of a living person who's been long passed away. And they're also classic Victoriana. They are 
absolutely sentimental. They're ornate. There's nothing simple about the way that these look. And so from our modern aesthetic, they look outdated. But in terms of better understanding the 19th century, and in particular, better understanding white middle-class culture and the shift towards a kind of identity that's market-driven, these pieces of hair work are a vital part of the evidence we have of the past, and specifically the American past. Almost all items of hair work that are in museum collections in the United States were made in the United States or in the territories of the United States. And I think that in terms of giving us a very visceral understanding of the lives of a particular moment in time, um, hair work is one of the best tools that we have in the, in the museum collections. And I want to ask you, I ask all authors this, how did you become interested in this topic enough to write an entire book about it? So a couple of things. I actually did my master's thesis on an African-American um, cemeteries of Nicodemus, Kansas, and there are three of them. Nicodemus is an all-Black town in the center part of Kansas. The research I did related to that project was thinking about the ways that death and mourning are represented in cemeteries and specifically for African-American culture in very specific cultural ways. So when it came time for the dissertation, I wanted to do something in terms of that issue about death and identity, about cultural identity. The other part of it is that when I was a teenager and not even didn't even have a car, I had my mother drive me to a shopping mall that had an antique sale. So they had they basically rented the center of the mall out to antique dealers. And I ended up buying a button that had woven brown material in it. And when I looked at it, and I have a very clear memory of the guy who sold it to me, I asked him if it was hair because I was naive and didn't realize that would have raised the value. And he said, no, that's just like satin. So I bought it for a couple dollars and I kept it in a little keepsake box. And when I began to think about work, you know, what would be a good dissertation, I actually did think about that button. And I started kind of looking at some books and realized it was made of hair as I had originally thought, and that it was literally a tiny circle, almost like a dot of a constellation of objects that I hadn't paid any attention to. And I realized that, well, one reason I hadn't paid attention to this hair work is because it was usually presented in museums as kind of eccentric or creepy or morbid. And nobody ever mentioned that it might be important to understanding middle-class culture and the past. So that's really where, where I started was that original purchase as a kind of history-obsessed teenager and then several years later, uh, casting about for some kind of project that would get me into the questions I was interested in. And it turned out that human hair work would help me answer a lot of those questions I had about 19th century culture. Well, I think you got your money's worth out of that button if you spent a couple bucks on it. I want to thank you so much for being our guest today. I want to encourage everybody to, to look at the uh, beautiful photos and read Helen's description of this type of work in the latest issue of Connecticut Explored. 
I'm Mary Donahue for Grading the Nutmeg. To learn more, get your copy of the Fall 2021 issue of Connecticut Explored at ctexplored.org. Dr. Shoemaker's book is Love Entwined, The Curious History of Human Hair Work, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2007. Want to know more about Connecticut's landmarks, museums, art, and history? Subscribe to Connecticut Explored in your mailbox at ctexplored.org shop or your inbox at ctexplored.substack.com. And for a daily dose of history, visit Today in Connecticut History, produced by the Connecticut State Historian at todayinctshistory.com. Thank you.